Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Real everybody, I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Yo, eleven. Oh God, and we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, we're heading to Vegas with Frank, Dean, Sammy, and the gang 
to see about some money in the original 1960 Lewis Milestone film, Ocean's Eleven. That's a good idea. Take a couple of hundred big ones and do something for world peace. Like buying out the Miss Universe contest. Get rid of all the parades and all that jazz. And just sit around and talk to the girls one by one. Find out how things are in Sweden. Andy, man, did I... I was looking forward to this movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. And I was so excited to kick off our series and really <laughs> launch it on the right foot. I was so excited. I'm glad you were excited. How did how did that uh, pan out for you? It did not pan out, Andy. It did not. It did no. not. This movie was not great. No. I would. I I want to go watch Solo again. How's that? <laughs> How's that, haters? <laughs> you want to fall in love with Solo? Go ahead. Watch Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> Right. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, this was a snoozer. Well, I had never seen it before. So my my first experience with uh, Ocean's Eleven was the uh, Steven Soderbergh remake, which we're talking about next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, too, thought it would be fun to go back to the original and kind of get a taste for it. I had never seen a film of the Rat Pack, so it was my kind of first taste of that experience. In fact, I was looking at it. I don't think I'd ever seen... I I have seen these guys in so many different places, but I've seen so few films of theirs. And uh, so this was really kind of uh, definitely the first Rat Pack experience that I had of kind of the actual... At least the main trio, for sure. Right. Um, And so it was nice to see them on screen, but um, man, I just... I didn't like any of the characters... The story took forever to get off the ground. Um, the 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 way that it got off the ground was just uh, just tepid. Like Danny Ocean, uh, played by Frank Sinatra, was just I mean he was a bore, and he was like being kind of a, a very coy about the whole thing that he was doing. Yeah. You know, he had this really really panicky financier. Um, played by Akim Tamaroff, um, uh, who was playing Asibos. Um, you know, who was just freaking out because he couldn't get a hold of Ocean and, and he wanted to know what the plan was. And and Ocean was just like always cool in a way. I'm like, why is he acting like he doesn't want to tell anybody what's going on? It was it was just absurd. And it was it got irritating because it goes on almost for a full hour before anything actually happens. Um, other than very slowly kind of meeting the crew, the, you well, know, the all the eleven people, but and so. on that point, Andy, I really I want to interject this because I want your opinion on it. I it feels like everybody thought that Danny Ocean was in charge, except Danny Ocean. And in fact, if you go just by the straight up charisma and setup of the movie, this very well could have been. You know, it, it felt to me like it was intended to be Peter Lawford's movie. Like he was the guy I was more interested in at the get go, and. Not by much. Not really. I mean, I would say Richard Conti's character is more interesting. I would say that Henry Silva's character is more interesting. You know, they they all have more things going for them uh, than Frank Sinatra's character, who is just, I mean, there's nothing about him I like. He's he's got this wife, uh, played by Angie Dickinson, who he's uh, cheating on with, um, I don't know, is it uh, Adele, right? Patrice Wymore. Um, 
And yet Angie knows it and still comes back to him in the end. Uh, you know, and there was just nothing about him that was appealing at all. And the fact that this heist was his, uh, you know, there was, we never see any planning. It was, it was a strange way to put a heist film together because you basically spend the first nearly hour assembling the team, which they all know they're a part of the team already, except for maybe uh, two guys, I think. One who's just coming out of the slammer, and um, who's the other one who's, or am I misremembering? Is it just that one guy who's just coming out of the slammer? He's the only one who only kind of well, knows that he's in it. Or it's he, really, uh, and what, uh, because he has cancer, and he decides yeah. to go along with it after all. Richard Conti Wasn't character. that the, yeah, it was Richard Conti, but what about Tony? He, Tony, yeah, uh, yeah, that is Tony. Tony Bergdorf, yeah. Richard Conti, and he... Yes. I think he's the the only one who's already not a part of the team, right? So there's no assembling the team. They basically have the team. It's just slowly watching them gather in Vegas and getting little bits and pieces of who they are. But nothing really that stood out as interesting. I mean, you get a little bit of this camaraderie. These guys were all paratroopers together in the war. And so they all knew each other. Um, You get a hint that, you know, Dean Martin says something like, you know, I, you know, it's just, I, I'm almost, part of me thinks I'm only really doing this just because I needed an excuse to see you guys again. Yeah, it's like, it's a reunion. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, <laughs> and there's, like, there's no real reason to do this robbery other than, hey, let's get together, and hey, we can pull this robbery off. Sure, why not? We've got the skills. Let's do yeah. it. It, 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 it just, was, it was, I didn't find that believable, the paratrooper gone uh, criminal element. Now, I know we've seen movies that, that do that, right? That, that take on the, uh, um, you know, the soldier, you know, robbing the, the battlefield uh, sort of aesthetic. I, I get that. But this one, they did not sell that. They didn't set it up well enough. Uh, and the, the way they, they dropped the clues about these, uh, these particular, members of the 11 um, did not set it up that they were guys who were actually primed and experienced thieves. Uh, So, and I think part of it is what you said, like you don't get any building the team. The team was already built. And so we don't have that sort of, um, you know, the the forming, storming, norming, if we're going to go into organizational development uh, language, we, we don't actually get the part where the team is is struggling because they already know each other. They already know what they're there to do. And we get, we don't get let in on it until 53 stinking minutes into the movie. And just meeting these guys for 53 minutes is so painful. It's horrible. Yeah. It's, 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 it really, it surprises me that this worked and uh, actually was a successful film. And I think it largely was just the personalities, honestly. Um, the yeah. film, looking at reviews, it didn't sound like it was uh, very well reviewed. It wasn't a film that, um, that seems to, you know, kind of stick at all. It, it largely just seems that, hey, let's go see uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Peter Lawford, uh, Joey Bishop, you know, the, the main core of the Rat Pack, plus everyone else um, on the big screen in this, in this uh, little heist comedy. And, and that seems to be largely the reason that, that people went to it, which it just seems so surprising to me. But 
I, I mean, looking at who these guys were, I know they were incredibly popular at this time. This was a you know a, a big period um, of their popularity. Um, Sinatra was already getting more popular in movies. He had won an Oscar like what I think seven years before this. Um, they were buddies with uh, JFK. Peter Lawford, who is you know one of the Rat Pack, was JFK's brother-in-law, and I guess Sinatra Sinatra actually called him Brother in Lawford which I think is pretty mm-hmm. funny. Um, they um, they were hanging out with JFK all the time. When he would come to Vegas, they would all kind of hang out together. And actually, he, they all campaigned for him um, and appeared at the this year. The, like, I think actually the month before this opened, they appeared at the Democratic National Convention in L.A., kind of uh, touting Kennedy. So, I mean, they were really in big circles. And... Plus, they were performing in Vegas, and here they are doing a film where it, that takes place in Vegas. I mean, it's just, it's, I can see why there would be popularity for this movie. Yeah, I can too, just just because of how, you know, how important the Rack Pack was, you know, culturally. And reading up a little bit more on the Rat Pack, I, I was not schooled. <laughs> in the Rat Pack, uh, beyond you know what we've talked about, you know, talking about uh, Bogart, right? Uh, talking about Bogart in in the fifties, kind of people hanging out with him and and uh, Lauren Bacall, and just sort of transitioning into the Rat Pack in the nineteen sixties, um, and that they were their own sort of promotional group, right? When one did a concert, the others would just sort of spontaneously show up. And so you never knew what kind of a show you were going to get. It was a surprise every night from casino to casino. And that became not so underground following of these guys. I I was not in on the joke. I did not find their on-screen charisma interesting uh, at all, compelling at all. And we only have, I mean, we have five members of the Rat Pack here, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop. The other guys uh, were not technically part of the Rat Pack, although Cesar Romero is uh, listed as a, quote, visiting member of the Rat Pack. And Angie Dickinson, uh, among some of the other women who are listed as Rat Pack mascots. So, right, Including Shirley MacLaine, who does yes, pop up it, uncredited right, right. in this film. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and so uh, they take their uh, weird sort of uh, diminishing misogyny on and off screen. So, uh, yeah, it was it was it was tough for me to get into the vibe. Uh, I'm not uh, I'm not naturally. Um, well, anyway, it was tough for me to get into the vibe. Yeah, me too. And and I, I, I do feel this is a film of its era. Like, I think it would be harder to uh, really connect with the group, especially if you don't have the history behind it to really kind of tap into who these people were, why they were together, what types of films they were doing, what they were doing performance-wise, all of that sort of stuff. And it, I mean, I do find all of that history of the Rat Pack interesting, you know, this kind of this this group that kind of was birthed from hanging out with uh, Bogey and Bacall, basically, mm-hmm. um, as they, as, uh, and I think um, uh, Lauren Bacall is actually the one who theoretically gave it the name when she saw Humphrey Bogart and all of his friends uh, coming back from a night in Vegas. And she said something like, you look like a goddamn rat pack. <laughs> and, um, and that was kind of the, theoretically the, the, the way that the, the term was uh, uh, born with this group. Um, and yeah, like you said, it, it varied uh, depending on who was kind of in popularity with them at the time. Um, 
And it, it mostly seemed to be men, but I was surprised to see some women in there, like Judy Garland had been in it at a time. And, um, and uh, but by this point, it seemed to be mostly those those five guys. And then, like you said, the women by that point in the 60s were really kind of called the Rat Pack mascots. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting group. I like the history of that. Um, if anything, watching this movie made me more interested, less interested in watching their movies and more interested in watching. Um, I think there was a biopic made about them in the 90s called The Rat Pack that had Ray Liotta, mm-hmm. Joe Mantegna, Don Cheadle, um, which was really kind of about their lives and the role in JFK's uh, 1960 campaign. Like, I'm I'm now more interested to watch that uh, than to look back at this movie because this movie was just such a tedious bore. You know what isn't of an era? I, when, when you look at, at how people were writing about this movie... Uh, I find some of these things interesting, and I'm just picking off of the um, the, the review from the New York Times. I, I want to read just a couple of paragraphs, uh, and this was this was the original review, the 1960 review. Uh, it, it is a surprisingly nonchalant and flippant attitude toward crime, an attitude so amoral, so amoral, Andy, it roadblocks a lot of valid gags. Is man- it's maintained through Ocean's Eleven, which arrived at the Capitol yesterday. Frank Sinatra, who's the power behind the picture, should have a couple of his merit badges taken away. Uh, and we go on to, um, that's the way it is. There is no dishonor, no moral misgivings, no sweat outside of the normal natural tension that occurs while the crime is being done. After the whole thing is over and a hijacker moves in to grab the swag, there is no built-in implication that the boys have done something wrong. There's just an ironic, unexpected, and decidedly ghoulish twist whereby they are deprived of their pickings and what seems like they're just desserts. Now, that I thought was uh, a, a a astute observation of another major problem with the movie. The LA Examiner said the same thing. This film is one of the few that typifies the demoralization trend in filmmaking today. There's no punishment for the crime. I, I, I honestly I cannot remember the remake uh, that Soderbergh did well enough to uh, remember, you know, if there's much justification for the robbery or anything like that. But we can talk more about that next week. As it stands here, yeah. I mean, it's just these guys, there's no motivation really. I, I mean, they, they give some personal motivation. And I, the one that really stands out is, again, Richard Conti's Tony because he's dying of cancer and he wants to make sure he has money to pay uh, for his kid to get through school and to and to make sure, take care of his ex-wife so that she can take care of his kid. He should um, have started cooking meth. <laughs> right, we've seen this story. We've seen before. this story. <laughs> as soon as Cesar Romero comes in, uh, everything goes just sort of clockwork wonky. You know, I mean, you could you could pretty much write your way out of the script as soon as he walks in the door, uh, and uh, it was totally uninteresting. Their meeting uh, between Romero when he comes and threatens them and to take the money uh, was uh, totally without tension or. Uh, uh, or uh, again, foreboding doom, uh, and then they played it off in uh, what was uh, ultimately a, a ridiculous and and disappointing uh, grand finale. Well, I, I and I mean, I actually didn't mind the grand finale. If anything, that was like one element that I actually enjoyed. Um, but it did make me wonder what was their game? Like, what were they assuming that he wasn't going to get cremated? What was their game? They were going to leave with the money, but um, 
Santos still he would then know that they had it and mm-hmm. would the have body would in be in San Francisco, which but, is where it, they thought it was going. But how yeah. were they going to get it out of there? And there's no reason he still couldn't like turn them in or something like the, mm-hmm. it seems like there's a, a logic problem with this this setup that they've created. You know, either they're going to be in trouble with Santos or he's going to turn them in or he's going to perform a hit and take the money. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he knows they have it just because they get it out of Vegas doesn't mean they get it out of his hands, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I find just an intrinsic structural problem with the nature of that. And really, the only way to write themselves out of that is the destruction of the money, right? That's really the only way to kind of close the entire thing and say, oh, it all went up in flames. Okay, let's laugh it off and walk out the door. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so this gets us into that particular sequence. It it, it hits right at the end of the movie, two hours, two minutes, 26 seconds into the movie, and just watch to the end. Uh, the remaining 10 show up to the funeral for Bergdorf. Uh, Kelly, the funeral home director, sees them. He is a double agent for Mr. Santos. He calls Santos, uh, who shows up and ends up sitting in the pew right behind them, which ends up being important staging for the final shot. Just in time to, well, and, you know, he gets the the call from the funeral home director who says he found the money wrap. And um, and so he knows that they have now put the money with the body. And so he shows up and um, and just in time because when he walks through the door, that's when we hear that kind of furnace sound. And then we find out the gag that when they're asking, what's that sound? Oh, the, the deceased is being cremated. And yes, that's the big joke as we go down the line and see all their reactions as they, one by one, all 10 of them turn to look at each other. This is, I know that's meant to be a gag, right? That it's meant to be funny. It's a sight gag, right? When you watch them all together, realize what has just happened to them. Uh, and I, I was not laughing, but you enjoyed this. Well, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the twist. I, I thought that was like an enjoyable moment in the film. I mean, I honestly, the film does pick up a little bit with the robbery. It's not, it's not as dead as it is for the first near hour of the film. Like once, once the robbery kicks in, it's like, okay, at least there's something to watch. Um, it's, it's decent enough for a 1960s heist to, to buy into, kind of the way that the robberies pulled off. You know, I can I can buy into the whole thing. It's you know, it just it's watching the pieces fall into place as you see this whole robbery happen. Yeah, I I found myself uh getting super tired of it though because I mean, it really is the, the extent of the robbery is a lot of keys and doors that need to be opened and unlocked and they need to be unlocked in a way that hides them from passersby and so most of the gags are around how do we get this guy through that door without other guys seeing them, right? Yeah, right. I mean, there was nothing, pretty, and, and that went on over and over and over again, and there were only about four doors, or I guess five doors, that they really needed to be concerned about, which got really old. It got really old until they actually cut power. Right when they cut power, then it, then there's a an interesting sequence where all the lights are out, and it turns out all of these vaults in Las Vegas, all of their backup power are candles, which I thought was so charming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got your oh, tea the good old there, days. Mr. Davis. 
yeah. It was great. Uh, that that part was great, and and the sneaking about, uh, I I thought was was very funny. But here's my problem, and this is a problem that extends to the entire movie all the way to the end, uh, to the last scene. That this movie has an identity problem. It doesn't know if it's funny. If it's intense, like crime uh, caper movie, uh, or or if it's uh, or or what it is, and so we swing back and forth between these jokes that aren't all that funny to intense chases and caper things that aren't all that scary or intense uh, to the the final gag, which ends up being a sucker punch at the end of a movie that it, where it might have been funny if the rest of the movie were funny enough to live up to it it might have been sad if it, if the movie were more dramatic than it was but it ends up just being ugh i got i waited through all of that for this I, and that i think may be an intrinsic problem of the way that the script was created i mean it was originally peter lawford heard of this idea uh from director gilbert k uh who apparently got the idea from a gas station attendant of all people um it was uh but at the time the script uh they they uh gilbert k had the script written i can't remember who it was who uh he had write the script but it was a much more melodramatic crime film um lawford and sinatra bought the screenplay rights they weren't planning on starring in it um but they were debating what to do with it and by the time they decided to be in it they brought lewis milestone on uh, milestone really felt let's drop the drama and really boost the comedy and all they really kept from the script is the is the basic core of the team um but i'm wondering if if in some of the translation of of the idea from that first script to this script kind of kept the scenes um where they felt disjointed yeah that's exactly what it felt like to me it it, it felt like they were handed a what what was probably a uh, great idea from a gas station attendant and then played telephone tag with it all the way to the big screen and, yeah. and it, it is not the movie that they ended up with um, well and it's it's an odd little scene right I, I you know we we watch these guys uh show up at the funeral um they know that they've hidden all the money in bergdorf's bergdorf's coffin his wife has no idea she's sitting up at the front um when they walk in you get a very odd zoom shot or it's kind of like a trucking shot or zoom i'm not exactly sure which one it was but um going right up to the front of the place kind of revealing that there's no coffin up there and it should be a clue but what it does zoom into is it's that kind of triangle eye image that you see like on the back of the, uh, the dollar <laughs> like bill. the Oculus, right. Yeah. And I'm like, what are they saying with this shot that, you know, fate is watching them? I, I really wasn't <laughs> sure exactly what the what the uh, idea was behind it um, other than, you know, um, you know, there's, you know, more at work than than what you guys have in store or something. You I didn't know that the, all of Las Vegas is the the entire underground. <laughs> like that takes you down stairs into a pyramid, uh, right. the underground pyramid, and the whole thing is run by a cult. And it is it's very grim. It's very dark, and they all right. have to get tattoos on their inside of their wrists. It's awful. So funny. It's yeah. it was such a strange move though to kind of push into that image before we jump into them sitting down at the funeral. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's an interesting little scene. Um, there's not much. It felt very 60s as far as kind of the way that uh, William Daniels handled the cinematography. It just kind of felt uh, pretty basic. The color, the lighting, everything felt. 
I mean, you know, they didn't have the, the, the film stock that we have later. So it all felt very lit. It all felt very, um, very just, you know, technicolor. And, and it's the funeral home. It's not as technicolor. But man, did those flowers pop. Well, uh, so that's the that's the end where they all end up one at a time looking at one another until they get to the very, very end. Who's on the end? Do you remember who's who the last guy? And he it's stares Joey at the Bishop, whole thing. Right? No, it's Joey Bishop, that's right. And he's at the end. He looks at all the guys down the line and he turns over and he just crosses his legs. And then we have the walk of shame, uh, which is, to me, probably the single most interesting just tracking shot or walking shot that we have right i i thought it was uh <laughs> it was really cool and it uh what i like about it and why i want to call attention to it is particularly because uh it informs i think so much of the look of how soderbergh uses the camera to shoot uh, the the remake. Just the way they put the angle, the way they use the guys, the way the guys are walking uh, sort of just just a little bit faster than the camera, uh, I, that he is able here to put a whole uh, a group, a large group of stars together and still feel like each one is getting uh, credit, right? Each one is getting visual credit in the scene. And I, and well, I don't and, mean and because they credits. actually have little <laughs> literal credits, not only like uh, credits keyed on top of them, but also the signs behind them actually right. have their names on them too, which which is uh, maybe a little overboard, but it's a nice visual touch. Uh, I actually think that this is the, just the way he uses the camera, the way the camera's tilted up to, to get a long parallax uh, perspective shot of all of these guys, all 11 or 10 remaining guys uh, as they walk by the camera is interesting and compelling and sad. And it is a great sort of, uh, you know, punctuation to this gag that, frankly, should have been either sadder or funnier. That is a really nice shot. You're right. I like that. It's got kind of that EO11 song that Sammy Davis Jr. was randomly singing earlier, uh, now uh, sung much more in a melancholy way. Um, And I I agree. I liked how it's this, this... um, truck backward as you're kind of walking with this these group of characters and they slowly one by one kind of walk past the camera out of frame allowing for us to kind of kind of connect with each person or pair before they disappear so yeah right. it, it was nice I, I did like it too okay so why did you want to uh, talk about the credits this was a, just an interesting little nod that uh, yes as you mentioned that when you look at the sign of the sands motel or hotel uh, behind them uh, at the casino, this sign actually has um, our five main guys up there, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joy Bishop, because I guess, I, I don't know if it's all five of them or at least a couple of them were part owners of the Sands, and they were performing at the Sands at the time. <laughs> and what they were doing during the production of this is they were still performing at the Sands at night. They'd shoot all day and then perform at night. But in order to kind of stay fresh, they were rotating. So through the five guys listed on the sign, like Sinatra would perform one night and then Martin the next and then Davis the next. <laughs> it's just like, man, these guys, I mean, aside from shooting a full day and then jumping in and actually performing at night. Uh, it just seemed like the. I mean, I guess that's the lifestyle, right? That's what the that's these funny. guys. It, it seems like that's how they were uh, living their life. It's an interesting shot too, because it's it as they walk out of the building, 
Uh, let's see if I get this right. So they walk out of the building, and Sammy Davis Jr. is the first one who crosses the street. He's isolated. We're on Sammy. He gets to the other side of the street, and then it cuts back further backward as if, you know, the, the entire group was walking in front of Sammy. That's really, that's a little bit weird. Uh, what I was wondering is if there's any sort of reason to have Sammy start and end this thing, uh, this whole train, because at the end, there's a long hold on Sammy. Well, uh, it's almost like just as it's fading out, it looks like he stops, like he was going to stop and just stand there for a minute. The only thing I could think of is that he's singing that song. He's got that EO11 song, yeah, as I mentioned. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe, maybe they're just head. highlighting him because he's the one who's on screen. You know, he's singing at the moment. I I, no. I don't know. It was it was an odd choice. I would have expected it to be Danny Ocean if anyone was going to yeah. be the one that they kind of that stayed behind and they held on. But he's like one of the first to disappear. Yeah. Again, whose movie is this? <laughs> who's yeah, head of right. this gang? Uh, what'd you think of the? Uh, okay, two points. What'd you think of the credits? The uh, animation of the credits. Uh, Saul Bass is always fantastic. Um, his little animated title sequence is fun. Um, and, and there's a tiny bit at the end also, just with all the little dots and everything moving yep. all around. Um, I loved it. And it's one of those, you watch it, and as soon as it comes on screen, I'm like, oh, it's Saul Bass. And, and it's always fun to see a Saul Bass uh, project that I haven't seen before. So I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the concept of it. It was uh, like so much uh, of the film too long. Uh, it goes through, it's these, these, it's the lights of a marquee, animated lights of a marquee, and it's forming uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way to 11. Oh my God, all the way to 11. <laughs> and, uh, and, and on some of the numbers, there's actually a cast member, not on all of them, which I thought was very strange. Um, th- that's the opening credits, of course. And my second question, uh, Andy, is, you know, because we have a bunch of performers, was it weird for you to have them constantly singing and dancing? Well, they don't, though, right? I mean, that's, I thought, kind of an interesting thing is Sammy Davis Jr. um, and Dean Martin are the only two who ever really perform. And Dean Martin performs in context of an actual performer. Like, that's his job. Oh, he does. But then he's in the hotel and he's singing and he's doing the, he's always singing. And Sammy Davis Jr. is, is, he did the, Sammy Davis Jr. does it once. I'm hanging around. Hey, everybody. I know we're just a bunch of of trash men, but let me show you my tap dancing (laughs) (laughs) dancing gig. It's so weird. It is so weird. I did not like it. I was not, I I did not care for it. it. It's, in context of a musical, that sort of stuff works. Unfortunately, this was never structured as a musical. And Again, I think identity be- problem. Yeah, because of that, it just feels like, you know, why why is that in here? I get it. This is what the audience is coming for. They want to see these guys doing these performances. And that's why I think this film is really going to struggle um, the farther we get from 1960, because people aren't going to have as much of a connection with any of these people, with any of the Rat Pack or anyone else involved. And it, then you really just have to rely on the strength of the film as it stands by itself. And to that end, it just doesn't hold up because, yes, as you just said, it has an identity crisis. It throws these musical things in that just don't make sense because it's not a musical. It never feels like a musical. They're just kind of there. Yeah, exactly. And and to your point, you know, is it funny that even though I know Dean Martin, Dean Martin and Lewis, right, I, I get their gig. I get Sinatra as a musician. 
Uh, and I, I certainly appreciated him as a musician and listened to him. But when I watched this movie, the face that I had the greatest affinity for, do you want to guess? Sammy Davis Jr. Come on. You don't have the same one? No. Richard oh. Conti. Oh, Andy. Norman Fell. Now, is that just because it's Norman Fell? Because he is so, there's nothing to him. Doesn't matter. I grew up watching every single episode of Three's Company, and Mr. Roper is burned in my brain. So well, I see, saw him, and I was like, "That's a, it's this is a Norman Fell vehicle, clearly." <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, okay, so for me, it was it was two people, uh, Richard Conti, uh, because I just like Richard Conti a lot. You know, because of films like The Godfather and other projects yep. that he's been in, where. He has a much uh, stronger presence and obviously carries a lot of weight. Um, and and I guess a lot of that is because in this film, he is the one who's carrying most of the weight. Yeah, right. But I, I really like watching him on screen. The other one that surprised me um, to see as one of the team, which I enjoyed quite a bit, um, was Henry Silva. And we see him a lot because he's one of the guys who's kind of going around. He's trying to get in touch with Tony to fill him in on all of this sort of stuff. And he's trying to like kind of help bring bring everybody together and stuff. He's one of those actors who has been in a lot of films that um, I, I just never felt like he was. He always seemed like a very bit player or a bad guy sort of guy but never as somebody who really kind of had a bigger role. And I just kind of really enjoyed watching him. Um, you know, I mean, he'd done Manchurian Candidate with Frank Sinatra. And he had been in other, I mean, tons of projects before. But um, just, I've always seen him as a much smaller character. So those are the two guys that I, I really enjoyed seeing in this one. Well, and if you're, a, uh, if you're a fan at all of Batman the Animated Series, he's the voice of Bane. Well, and speaking of Batman, Cesar Romero, yeah, <laughs> as we already right, mentioned, right. of course, he's the Joker. Exactly. Who wouldn't uh, sh- shave his mustache for the part. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I I, it's it. It, it's a funny it's a funny era. Uh, but, you know, on that same point, like I there, there were not a lot like I found myself getting the rest of these guys uh, a little bit confused. Uh, you know, I was not a big Joy Bishop like I don't know Joy Bishop, pretty much the the top four, uh, and Richard Conti, Henry Silva, uh, and um, you know Caesar Romero, uh, obviously Norman Fell. The other three guys are I, I would get them sort of twisted around. I guess Richard Benedict is kind of notable as Curly. Um, you know, you kind of he's he's a recognizable character, um, but I just uh, you know didn't have much of a sense of of him as a sort of meaningful contributor to the film. Well, I think that's the thing, right? You're not getting much uh, from uh, Buddy Lester or Richard Benedict or Clem Harvey. Um, I mean, Clem, I guess you do because he's such a character. Yeah, uh, caricature. Caricature, yeah. Yeah, There's really not much of a character. He's just kind of the the weirdly placed cowboy in the group. Um, But I don't know. I... To that end, though, like you get as as little for those guys as you do for, you know, Angie Dickinson, who plays uh, Beatrice Ocean. Um, And so it's 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 disappointing that they don't actually take more of that enormous amount of time they take setting it up to really build interesting characters that we can actually like. It's just the characters are so flat out of the gate and and just I, I just felt like it was mean spirited, like Danny Ocean was always like. 
oh, I'm not going to talk to you, uh, Acebos, even though you want to talk to me. Uh, you're going to talk to me on my terms. Like yeah. I, his attitude was just so he's strange. And yeah, he's just like, why am I supposed to like this guy? It's one of those things where I think at the yeah. time, everybody loved Frank Sinatra. So you were instantly in love with his character and you just saw all of that as funny. And it just doesn't play now, I don't think. I don't think so either. Uh, William Daniels uh, is cinematographer of, of this movie. And I, ah, it, this is one of those, uh, we get sort of a bookended career, kind of. The last time, I think the last time we talked about William Daniels was Ninochka, uh, 1939. Uh, and that was uh, it's that's not really the beginning of his career. He started at, at, at 1922, uh, but Ocean's Eleven was closer to the end. Um, and uh, so, what you what you think of his performance behind the camera here? Well, as I kind of talked about in the deep scene dive, I felt like a lot of it was very um, standard 60s cinematography. Um, Nothing stood out to me. Um, and so, I mean, you know, you you pan down the or truck down the row of, of faces. You know, you you truck in on the strange Oculus on the wall. You you truck along with the people. But it all seemed pretty standard. The only area that really I thought was they were clearly having some fun with was the glow in the dark bits or the infrared, you know, goggles of all the footprints right, and the right. markings on the doors so that they knew where to um, access for their uh, the break in sequence. Um, other than that, it just, it was pretty standard. Nothing special. I already talked about the, uh, act of actors breaking in and singing and how stupid it is. And we both agree that it's really, really stupid, but we're going to move on from that and talk about the music itself. Uh, Nelson Riddle, uh, and we got some custom songs. Yeah. Nelson Riddle did the score and certainly a, uh, kind of a jazzy uh, film scorer, um, but has done quite a variety of stuff from um, a lot of projects uh, through through the ages from, um, man, I think that uh, that he started working in the in the 50s right before this um, into uh, into the uh, the 80s, but, uh, you know, worked on a lot of things, including like um, well, you just watched one of his, uh, at least yeah. he was in the music department, The Great Gatsby, and that was uh, music that really, really popped and helped that movie move right along, I think you said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think that's exactly how I worded it. Um, but Lolita, like there are, there are films uh, in, in uh, his career that I think are pretty interesting. But what stood out to me for the music was the actual song that Dean Martin performs several times uh, in the film. Ain't that a kick in the head? This was a pop song written um, the year this film came out, 1960, with music by Jimmy Van Hoysen and lyrics by Sammy Kahn. Um, Dean Martin recorded it. It did this kind of big band arrangement with it. And it was kind of, it was performed. They wrote it for the film. It was performed for the film. Originally, I guess it was titled Ain't That a Kick in the Seat, but they changed it to head. But um, uh, And then the single actually came out before the movie, um, so technically it was released outside of the film, but it still is written for this film. Um, and I, I had a hunch of that because it happens. They, it's like the only song that keeps, well, I shouldn't say it's the only song that EO 11 song keeps coming back to, Ugh. but, um, this one kept coming back and I'm like, I wonder if this is where that song came from. Um, and it's interesting because Soderbergh, I can't recall if he used the song in the, in his trilogy, but I know he used it in other films, and I believe it's um, 
what's the what George Clooney, uh, Jennifer Lopez film, Out of Sight. Out of Sight, yeah. I believe he used it in Out of Sight. Um, so it's one of those things that I feel like Soderbergh is schooled on all of that sort of stuff and likely came up on the idea to actually make sure he was including that in his films because of this connection. And and to the point of ain't that a kick in the head, Pete, this is, mm-hmm. uh, I, I had to know of the, of the songs that were nominated for Oscar this year, I, I have to think, ain't that a kick in the head? I mean, ain't that a kick in the head? That's a great song. It's a song that is still memorable, something that people uh, maybe know. Uh, it, it's just a song that I think has lasted the test of time long past this film, right? I would agree. So I was I was curious, what were the other songs that were actually nominated at the Oscars for best original song in <laughs> oh, 1960? No. Oh, so, God. So these were the songs. Let me know if you know any of them or can sing any of them for me. <laughs> First up from the film Never on Sunday is the song Never on Sunday. No. That's the song that won. Best, I got nothing. Uh, Are you kidding? Song. I have no idea how that <laughs> goes. Can you not? Uh, the next song is The Second Time Around, also written by Jimmy Van Hoysen and Sammy Kahn. It's the song uh, Second Time Around from the film High Time. Uh, that, okay, Second Time Around. I'm I'm sure that I have heard it. I can't place it right now. But of course, Sammy Kahn and uh, Hoysen have written like a thousand songs. Yeah, right. And okay. it's a film with Bing Crosby, Tuesday Weld. So exactly. It's, right, right, right. It's right, a right. song we've probably heard, but it's nothing yes. I could sing right now. No. Next song uh, from Andre Previn and Dory Previn is the song Far Away Part of Town from the film Pepe. I have I can't place either of those words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next is the song The Green Leaves of Summer from the film The Alamo. <laughs> oh, God. No. no, I don't have that either. God, Andy. And the are last you doing this one, to set me up? Uh, no, I, the last one is the song The Facts of Life by Johnny Mercer. Now, unless that's the theme song from the TV show, <laughs> I don't know this that. song. <laughs> this is a Bob you Hope Lucille Ball vehicle. <laughs> yeah, you take the good, you take the bad, take the you bad. take them both, and there you have there you the, have facts, of the life. facts of life. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, something uh, tells me that's not it. I bet it's not. So, anyway, <laughs> those were the five songs. I will take uh, Ain't That a Kick in the Head over any of those. Although now I'm curious. I'm going to actually go see find these on YouTube and listen to them. See if any of them ring a bell at all. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that all these years later, finally watching this film, that it was something special. And to watch it and find that it was really flat and uninteresting um, was a disappointment. But to that end, and we'll talk about this next week, I, I feel like this is the sort of film that is ripe for remaking. And uh, because it, you're not taking a great film and remaking it, you're taking a mediocre film and you're going, hey, let's let's take what that was or what it was meant to be and turn it into something different. That's right. Uh, this is this is a prime candidate. I, I think I could do this better film. Uh, prime candidate. That's a great point. Um, uh, the only other uh, face in the crowd that I wanted to bring up was Red Skelton, uh, the gambler who shows up and is begging the uh, the cage <laughs> attendant to raise his limit, even though he's the one who said, don't let me raise my limit uh, the day before. Uh, it was fun to see Red Skelton. But again, if that's not a marker on how this film has dated itself, I don't know what is. Well, you know, that's the issue. Anytime you're you're including people 
of the time in your film. I mean, the same thing happens with the Muppet films, right? Yeah. You have all these cameos of people at the time, people who are appearing on the Muppet show. Uh, and then when you watch, you throw them into the Muppet movie or any of the Muppet films, it is hilarious at the time. Um, but you're now, as time progresses and, and nobody has connections with those people anymore, you have to rely on those moments to just stand um, stand alone on their own. And if they can, great. And I think that's what works in the Muppet films often is that those moments still stand alone um, as their own little moments. This film, I mean, I guess to that end, I guess the Red Skelton moment can stand alone on its own because of the way it is. But again, it doesn't fit in context of all of the different things that this film is trying to be. Maybe in the comedy version of this film, but it never quite hits that comedy version. You talk about making that point specifically. Uh, go try and watch uh, Cannonball Run again, which is uh, Cannonball Run and Cannonball Run Two are technically in the list of Rat Pack movies. They were the yeah. last. Uh, it was the last. Last two. Uh, last two. Yeah, of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, and that is just uh, that. It's a whole catalog of people that are of their time. And um, oh, and uh, don't think- forget Sinatra and Shirley MacLaine both appear in Cannonball Run Two. Yes, absolutely, and uh, uh, so that one's that one's probably uh, it's got a soft spot in. Uh, I'm going to guess in our hearts. I'll speak for you a little bit. Maybe not because they're great movies, but because they were of our time, yep. and we know those faces. But my kids aren't interested. Right. That's these are vanishing. Well, and again, it has to work on its own merit, yeah. or it's never going to work past its era. And uh, and that's just that's the reality of it. It's certainly and the lesson of this film of of Ocean's Eleven. It doesn't doesn't is. hold up beyond its era. You want to say something about Lewis Milestone, uh, director? He's the one who who is handed the script. Yeah, I mean, he is a. I am guessing he was kind of a uh, director for hire on this. That he kind of came on um, to uh, take charge of the project, and it could have just been. One of those things where he pitched, you know, they they brought in different directors and he pitched, let's dump all this melodrama and make it a comedy. And that might have been the thing that uh, Sinatra and Lawford latched onto and the reason that he's hired. Who knows how these things work? But regardless, he came on to direct it. But Lewis Milestone is one of those directors who has been around in the industry uh, or, or had been by the time this film um, came out for a very long time. I mean, since the silent era, he had been making films. I think most prominently, um, probably the film All Quiet on the Western Front that he did in 1930. Quite a uh, powerful anti-war film that he made that uh, won several Oscars, including one for him, uh, Best Picture and Best Director, uh, it took home. That is, uh, that is, I would say, probably of the films I've seen of his, which, geez, as I look at his, his yeah, uh, I'm really credits, surprised. I think it's this and... Um, uh oceans 11 i mean oceans 11 and uh and sorry all quiet on the western front um you know he directed a version of of mice and men he directed a version of uh the red pony uh he did Les anything Mis. goes man bing crosby um, yeah uh but the the one that i uh, know i think even better than that is what he did right after oceans 11 which is mutiny on the bounty in 1962 oh, sure. Um, with uh, Brando and uh, Richard Harris, I've never seen that version. Yeah, and it's uh, it's worth seeing for sure. Um, it's it's a strong film, and that also is Lewis Milestone. So here's a director that uh, I, I feel like just sort of snuck into our list 
through a movie that is not one of his best, but he has done some some terrific uh, films uh, in his catalog, and this one was, uh, you know, right near the end. Les Mis, 1952, with um, uh, uh, Michael Rennie and Robert Newton. He had done a lot of a lot of projects. I, I think that, uh, um, yeah, he just he had really started slowing down uh, by this point, and um, uh, I think that just kind of I, I don't know. Just uh, I know that the end of his career, he was he had suffered a stroke. He was in a wheelchair, but I feel like that was long after this. So I think it was just one of those things where, um, you know, he just was kind of a director for hire and did all variety of projects. So He was born in Bessarabia, raised in Odessa, educated in Belgium and Berlin. That's so dramatic when you say it like that. Although some of those places don't even exist anymore. Speaking of places not existing. Oh, yeah, um, let's just, talk about just that. Just a little tidbit. Uh, yeah, the Sands Hotel, as it is seen in the film, <laughs> was demolished in November 1996 and rebuilt, um, which, you know, it made me wonder... How many of these places, and unfortunately I didn't do any research, but of the five hotels that they hit and casinos, how many of them are still in existence? Knowing that uh, Vegas has just gone through so many transitions and changes yeah. and facelifts. Well, let's talk about that next week because uh, I have a feeling uh, we stand a chance to find out. I'll, I'll bet there are uh, some Easter eggs in there uh, about some of these casinos. That. So uh, how to do it award season. It wasn't, uh, like I said, the reviews weren't huge. It wasn't a big award movie, although it did get nominated for two at the Laurel Awards. It was nominated for the Golden Laurel for Top Action Drama, which is this. These two awards, I think, go uh, speak very well to what we've been talking about. It was nominated for Top Action Drama, but came in fourth place uh, uh, behind the Alamo, which won first place. I don't know what second and third were. Uh, and then for the Writers Guild Awards, uh, for Best Written American Comedy for the Screen, it lost to The Apartment. And again, that was Best American Comedy. They don't know what this film is. Is it supposed to be a comedy? Is it supposed yeah. to be a drama? Who knows? And that's uh, one of its biggest issues. And how about at the box office? You know, unfortunately, this movie falls into that space where there's just very little information about it. Um, all I could find... Uh, were a couple things. A loose estimate that the movie made $5 million at the box office, which is about $40.6 million in today's dollars. And then I did find that it did become the highest grossing motion picture of Sinatra's career, uh, which was interesting for me. But, you know, I think for some of his other films, I guess it might maybe make sense. Um, but, yeah, other than that, I just I got nothing. Andy, I, th- I think you know what happens next. It's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see our entire list of films that we've talked about on this very show. Or you can swipe over in your show notes, tap the flick chart, and that'll send you straight over to this film where you can add it to your very own list. Where do we start? We're actually going to start with the quote on the movie poster, the tagline for this. You wouldn't call it a gang, just Danny Ocean and his 11 pals, the night they blew all the lights in Las Vegas. Like, even that, oh. I just feel like... <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's, it's not funny. There's, yeah, it's flat. Oh, well. Ocean's Eleven or Star Trek Beyond? Absolutely Star, Star Trek, Trek Beyond. Beyond, yeah. Ocean's Eleven or The Host? I will take The Host. Yeah, The Host. Oh, I'm thrilled to see that. <laughs> uh, Ocean's Eleven or Giant? Uh, wasn't there a giant connection with this one? You know, there was, actually, Andy. Uh, our fair editor... 
Philip Anderson was associate editor on Giant, and my first thought, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I think I would still take Giant, though. I would take Giant as well. Ocean's Eleven or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? I'm going to go with the uh, ants in Crystal I Skull. Too. Yep. Ants and uh, driving off cliffs and yeah. aliens and all sorts oh, of Oh, the Tarzan swinging. swinging with the monkeys. Yeah. Woo, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> Ocean's Eleven or The Edge? The Edge, please. The Edge. <laughs> I forgot The Edge was so low. Here we go, yeah, Pete. Ocean's funny. Eleven or Rush? I'll take Rush, actually. <laughs> God, I might go outside and get some sun on my skin if those are my two choices. <laughs> Uh, I I think I'm I'm probably with you. I hate Rush, Andy. No, I'm gonna. You know, Rush is not I'm, the bottom on our list anymore. Uh, well, Just... I don't like any of those movies either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take Rush. Ocean's Eleven or Meek's Cutoff? <laughs> D- uh, I'll take. Uh... Oh man, Meek's Cutoff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, down at this part of the list, it it shouldn't give me so much trouble. I'm gonna take Meek's Cutoff. It has much more interesting female characters. Meek's got off. All right. Ocean's Eleven or your favorite film, uh-huh. Pete, Tony Manero. Oh, God. Take Oce- Tony Oceans, Manero. No, Ocean's Eleven. Let's <laughs> do it. We're going to go to the mat. He took a dump on a very, suit. He took a dump on a suit. I am going to go with Ocean's Eleven. I want to see Tony Manero have the same passion for Danny Ocean and perform like Danny Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he would. <laughs> He's gonna take a crap on his cashmere. Let's do <laughs> cashmere it. Cashmere orange sweater. Here we go. All right. One, two, two three. Paper. Rock. Oh yeah. You take this one. Suck it, Tony. It's not the bottom of our list, Pete, but it's second to last. Three fifty-five out of three fifty-six. And that means just as that- a reminder. <laughs> no. The bottom ten. Yeah. The last Boy Scout. The Omega Man, Children of the Corn, Scoop, Rush, <laughs> Under the Cherry Moon, The Women, Meeks Cutoff, Ocean's Eleven, and Tony Monero. Oh, thank God, Under the Cherry Moon. <laughs> oh. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> uh, Andy, uh, if, if I were to go by the algorithm, believe it or not, this movie is not uh, as far down on my personal list as it is on our collective list. Um, and I blame Flickchart <laughs> because it should be much further down. Uh, but this showed up at 895 on my list out of 1,025. Uh, how'd it do for you? Uh, it ended up uh, 3472 out of 3968. Uh, definitely pretty low. It's at about a 12%. Yeah, we're right about the same same place, 13% here. If I'm going by the algorithm... Uh, that should give me a half star on letterbox.com slash the next reel. Uh, what do you think? Um, yeah, mine would have been a half star as well. I had a hard time uh, kind of uh, reconciling that. I don't think it was quite that bad. Uh, I'm at a one and a half and a no yeah. like. Yeah, me too. Right there. One and a half, no like. Yeah. And that's disappointing. What a disappointing start to uh, to our series here. Um, it really is. Really next is. week, see, this is actually great because yeah, it can only go up. <laughs> it can it can only go up, and I, I think it'll be important that we have this on our palette going into the uh, Soderbergh Oceans movies. I 
I, I'm gonna tell you already. I'm I'm a fan. I think you are not as much of a fan as I am. But I hope that this movie has buoyed your impression of those films. <laughs> oh, it certainly has. And you know, I think Soderbergh did a lot of interesting stuff with them. I'm actually looking forward to revisiting them. I think I've only seen them each once. So ah. um, it should be fun to uh, jump back in and check them out again. Um, I, I know I will enjoy them because I enjoyed them the first time. I didn't love them, but I enjoyed them. And I did not enjoy this one. So as I said, it can only go up from here. All right. Well, I look forward to that. So yeah, next week we're going to be talking about uh, Soderbergh's 2001 Ocean's Eleven remake. Uh, but if you want to hear more of us and can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers, plus we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels, so just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at thenextreel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs the Instagram program, Ben Stirrick, who helps out over there, Ben Lott, who's running all things on Twitter, and, of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to this show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon. So we weren't big fans of this movie, so we went straight to the top. Uh, uh, we sure did. Look for some five-star uh, reviews. Uh, and and so here I have one that I'm not sure what to make of it. It feels... Well, you tell me what it feels like. Uh, our reviewer here calls this a two-hour highball. Quintessential greatest generation caper movie. If you can stomach the chauvinism and vague locker room tenor, the colors and ancient stylings are captivating. The apex of lighthearted post-war aesthetic, it's on par with It's a Mad, 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 Mad World in tone and mid-century escapism. Don't expect to be wowed by the plot, nor the pacing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I, I feel have to like say, he's, he's going to add in there. I watched this with my best buddy Donald Trump. Yeah, right, right. right. No, I I feel like uh, a if you're trying to make a case in favor of a movie, it's a mad, 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 mad world is not the movie you want to use to set the bar. One, uh, two, greatest generation caper movie. I'm sorry for the whole generation if this is what they came up with, and they didn't. They they've done better. Uh, and if yeah. you can stomach the chauvinism and, you know, vague locker room tenor. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, and, and I'm, I too was a fan of the ancient stylings of uh, ancient Las Vegas. My goodness. Yes. That was special to see, actually. Oh, dear. Vegas of days of yore. Well, I've got a five star by Robert W. who says, as advertised, and his words are, I bought this for my friend's mom, who's in her 80s. <laughs> That's his five-star review. 
And it held Luckily, up. nobody has found this helpful. She watched it just in time. Is that how she feel like? <laughs> she, she, she finally caught it. Yep. <laughs> well, there you go. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.